0: Part five of Phaedo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Newfeld. Phaedo by Plato, translated by Benjamin Jowett. Part five. I feel myself and I dare say that you have the same feeling, how hard, or rather impossible, is the attainment of any certainty about questions such as these in the present life. And yet I should deem him a coward who did not prove what is said about them to the uttermost, or whose heart failed him before he had examined them on every side. For he should persevere until he has achieved one of two things either he should discover, or be taught, the truth about them, or, if this be impossible, I would have him take the best and most irrefragable of human theories, and let this be the raft upon which he sails through life. Not without brisk, as I admit, if he cannot find some word of God which will more surely and safely carry him. And now, as you bid me, I will venture to question you and then i shall not have to reproach myself hereafter with not having said at the time what i think for when i consider the matter either alone or with sabbies the argument does certainly appear to me socrates to be not sufficient socrates answered i dare say my friend that you may be right but i would like to know in what respect the argument is insufficient in this respect replied simmias Suppose a person—to use the same argument about harmony and the lyre—might he not say that harmony is a thing invisible, incorporeal, perfect, divine, existing in the lyre, which is harmonized, but that the lyre and the strings are matter and material, composite, earthy, and akin to mortality, and when someone breaks the lyre, or cuts and rends the strings, Then he who takes this view would argue as you do, and on the same analogy, that the harmony survives and has not perished. You cannot imagine, he would say, that the lyre without the strings, and the broken strings themselves, which are mortal, remain, and yet that the harmony, which is of heavenly and immortal nature and kindred, has perished, perished before the mortal. The harmony must still be somewhere and the wood and strings will decay before anything can happen to that. The thought, Socrates, must have occurred to your own mind that such is our conception of the soul, and that when the body is in a manner strung and held together by the elements of hot and cold, wet and dry, then the soul is the harmony or due proportionate admixture of them. But, if so, Whenever the strings of the body are unduly loosened, or overstrained through disease or other injury, then the soul, though most divine, like other harmonies of music or of works of art, of course perishes at once, although the material remains of the body may last for a considerable time, until they are either decayed or burnt. And if any one maintains that the soul, being the harmony of the elements of the body, is first to perish in that which is called death, how shall we answer him? Socrates looked fixedly at us as his manner was, and said with a smile, "Simmias has reason on his side, and why does not some one of you who is better able than myself answer him? For there is force in his attack upon me. But, perhaps, before we answer him, we had better also hear what Sebes has to say, that we may gain time for reflection, and when they have both spoken, we may either assent to them, if there is truth in what they say, or, if not, we will maintain our position. "'Please to tell me, then, Sebes,' he said, what was the difficulty which troubled you. Sebes said, "'I will tell you.' My feeling is that the argument is where it was, and open to the same objections which were urged before. For I am ready to admit that the existence of the soul before entering into the bodily form has been very ingeniously, and if I may say so, quite sufficiently proven. But the existence of the soul after death is still, in my judgment, unproven. Now, my objection is not the same as that of Simmias for I am not disposed to deny that the soul is stronger and more lasting than the body, being of opinion that in all such respects the soul very far excels the body. Well, then, says the argument to me, why do you remain unconvinced? When you see that the weaker continues in existence after the man is dead, will you not admit that the more lasting must also survive during the same period of time? now i will ask you to consider whether the objection which like Simeus, i will express in a figure is of any weight the analogy which i will adduce is that of an old weaver who dies and after his death somebody says he is not dead he must be alive see there is the coat which he himself wove and wore and which remains whole and undecayed And then he proceeds to ask someone who is incredulous whether a man lasts longer, or the coat which is in use and wear, and when he is answered that a man lasts far longer, thinks that he has thus certainly demonstrated the survival of the man, who is the more lasting, because the less lasting remains. But that, Simmias, as I would beg you to remark, is a mistake. Any one can see that he who talks thus is talking nonsense, for the truth is that the weaver aforesaid, having woven and worn many such coats, outlived several of them, and was outlived by the last. But a man is not therefore proved to be slighter and weaker than a coat. Now, the relation of the body to the soul may be expressed in a similar figure and any one may very fairly say, in like manner, that the soul is lasting and the body weak and short-lived in comparison. He may argue, in like manner, that every soul wears out many bodies, especially if a man lives many years. While he is alive, the body deliquesces and decays, and the soul always weaves another garment and repairs the waste. But, of course, Whenever the soul perishes she must have on her last garment, and this will survive her. And then, at length, when the soul is dead, the body will show its native weakness and quickly decompose and pass away. I would therefore rather not rely on the argument from superior strength to prove the continued existence of the soul after death, for granting even more than you affirm to be possible, and acknowledging not only that the soul existed before birth, but also that the souls of some exist and will continue to exist after death, and will be born and die again and again, and that there is a natural strength in the soul which will hold out and be born many times, nevertheless we may still be inclined to think that she will weary in the labours of successive births, And may at last succumb in one of her deaths, and utterly perish. And this death and dissolution of the body, which brings destruction to the soul, may be unknown to any of us, for no one of us can have had any experience in it. And if so, then I maintain that he who is confident about death has but a foolish confidence, unless he is able to prove that the soul is altogether immortal and imperishable. But if he cannot prove the soul's immortality, he who is about to die will always have reason to fear that when the body is disunited the soul also may utterly perish. All of us, as we afterwards remarked to one another, had an unpleasant feeling at hearing what they said, when we had been so firmly convinced before, now to have our faith shaken seemed to introduce a confusion and uncertainty, not only into the previous argument, but into any future one. Either we were incapable of forming a judgment, or there were no grounds of belief. There I feel with you, by heaven I do, Fido, and when you were speaking I was beginning to ask myself the same question. What argument can I ever trust again? What could be more convincing than the argument of Socrates, which has now fallen into discredit? That the soul is a harmony is a doctrine which has always had a wonderful attraction for me, and, when mentioned, came back to me at once, as my own original conviction. And now I must begin again, and and find another argument which will assure me that when the man is dead the soul survives tell me i implore you how did socrates proceed did he appear to share the unpleasant feeling which you mention or did he calmly meet the attack and did he answer forcibly or feebly narrate what passed as exactly as you can often Echecrates, i have wondered at socrates but never more than on that occasion that he should be able to answer was nothing but what astonished me was First, the gentle and pleasant and approving manner in which he received the words of the young men, and then his quick response of the wound which had been inflicted by the argument, and the readiness with which he healed it. He might be compared to a general rallying his defeated and broken army, urging them to accompany him and return to the field of argument. What followed? You shall hear, for I was close to him, on his right hand seated on a sort of stool, and he on a couch which was a good deal higher. He stroked my head and pressed the hair upon my neck. He had a way of playing with my hair. And then he said, "'Tomorrow, Fido, I suppose that these fair locks of yours will be severed.' "'Yes, Socrates, I suppose that they will,' I replied. "'Not so, if you take my advice. "'What shall I do with them?' I said. Today day he replied, "'and not to-morrow. If this argument dies, and we cannot bring it to life again, you and I will both shave our locks. And if I were you, and the argument got away from me, and I could not hold my ground against Simmias and Sebes, I would myself take an oath, like the Argives, not to wear hair any more, till I had renewed the conflict and defeated them.' "'Yes,' I said, "'but Heracles himself is said not to be a match for two. "'Oh, summon me, then,' he said, "'and I will be your Iolaus until the sun goes down. I summon you rather,' I rejoined, "'not as Heracles summoning Iolaus, but as Iolaus might summon Heracles. That will do as well,' he said. "'But first let us take care that we avoid a danger.' "'Of what nature?' I said. Lest we become misologists," he replied,—no worse thing can happen to a man than this. For as there are misanthropists, or haters of men, there are also misologists or haters of ideas, and both spring from the same cause, which is ignorance of the world. Misanthropy arises out of the too great confidence of inexperience. You trust a man? and think him altogether true and sound and faithful, and then in a little while he turns out to be false and knavish, and then another and another, and when this has happened several times to a man, especially when it happens among those whom he deems to be his own most trusted and familiar friends, and he has often quarrelled with them, he at last hates all men, and believes that no one has any good in him at all. You must have observed this trait of character. I have. And is not the feeling discreditable? Is it not obvious that such an one having to deal with other men was clearly without any experience of human nature? For experience would have taught him the true state of the case, that few are the good and few are the evil, and that the great majority are in the interval between them what do you mean i said i mean he replied as you might say of the very large and very small that nothing is more uncommon than a very large or a very small man and this applies generally to all extremes whether of great and small or swift and slow or fair and foul or black and white and whether the instances you select be men or dogs or anything else Few are the extremes, but many are in the mean between them. Did you never observe this?' "'Yes,' I said, "'I have.' And do you not imagine,' he said, "'that if there were a competition in evil, the worst would be found to be very few?' "'Yes, that is very likely,' I said. "'Yes, that is very likely,' he replied, "'although in this respect arguments are unlike men.' There I was led on by you to say more than I had intended. But the point of comparison was, that when a simple man who has no skill in dialectics believes an argument to be true, which he afterwards imagines to be false, whether false or not, and then another and another, he has no longer any faith left. Great disputers, as you know, come to think at last that they have grown to be the wisest of mankind, for they alone perceive the utter unsoundness and instability of all arguments, or indeed of all things, which, like the currents in the Euripus, are going up and down in never ceasing ebb and flow. That is quite true, I said. Yes, Phaedo, he replied, and how melancholy, if there be such a thing as truth or certainty or possibility of knowledge, THAT A MAN SHOULD HAVE LIGHTED UPON SOME ARGUMENT OR OTHER WHICH AT FIRST SEEMED TRUE AND THEN TURNED OUT TO BE FALSE, AND INSTEAD OF BLAMING HIMSELF AND HIS OWN WANT OF WIT, BECAUSE HE IS ANNOYED, SHOULD AT LAST BE TOO GLAD TO TRANSFER THE BLAME FROM HIMSELF TO ARGUMENTS IN GENERAL, AND for ever AFTERWARDS SHOULD HATE AND REVILE THEM, AND LOSE TRUTH AND THE KNOWLEDGE OF REALITIES. Yes, indeed, I said, that is very melancholy. Let us then, in the first place, he said, be careful of allowing or of admitting into our souls the notion that there is no health or soundness in any arguments at all. Rather say that we have not yet attained to soundness in ourselves, and that we must struggle manfully and do our best to gain health of mind you and all other men having regard to the whole of your future life, and I myself in the prospect of death. For at this moment I am sensible that I have not the temper of a philosopher. Like the vulgar, I am only a partisan. Now the partisan, when he is engaged in a dispute, cares nothing about the rights of the question, but is anxious only to convince his hearers of his own assertions and the difference between him and me at the present moment is merely this, that whereas he seeks to convince his hearers that what he says is true, I am rather seeking to convince myself. To convince my hearers is a secondary matter with me, and do but see how much I gain by this argument, for if what I say is true, then I do well to be persuaded of the truth, but if there be nothing after death, still, during the short time that remains, I shall not distress my friends with lamentations, and my ignorance will not last, but will die with me, and therefore no harm will be done. This is the state of mind, Simeus and Cebes, in which I approach the argument, and I would ask you to be thinking of the truth, and not of Socrates. Agree with me, if I seem to you to be speaking the truth, or, if not, withstand me might and main, that I may not deceive you as well as myself in my enthusiasm, and, like the bee, leave my sting in you before I die. And now let us proceed," he said, and, first of all, let me be sure that I have in my mind what you were saying. Timeus, if I remember rightly. As fears and misgivings whether of the soul, although a fairer and diviner thing than the body, being as she is in the form of harmony, may not perish first, on the other hand, Cebes appeared to grant that the soul was more lasting than the body, but he said that no one could know whether the soul, after having worn out many bodies, might not perish herself and leave her last body behind, and that this is death which is the destruction not of the body but of the soul, for in the body the work of destruction is ever going on. Are not these, Simeas and Savis, the points which we have to consider?" They both agreed to this statement of them. He proceeded. "'And did you deny the force of the whole preceding argument, or of a part only?' "'Of a part only,' they replied. And what did you think, he said, of that part of the argument in which we said that knowledge was recollection, and hence inferred that the soul must have previously existed somewhere else before she was enclosed in the body? Sabis said that he had been wonderfully impressed by that part of the argument, and that his conviction remained absolutely unshaken. Simeas agreed, and added that he himself could hardly imagine the possibility of his ever thinking differently. "'But, but,' rejoined Socrates, "'you will have to think differently, my Theban friend, if you still maintain that harmony is a compound, and that the soul is a harmony which is made out of strings set in the frame of the body. For you will surely never allow yourself to say that a harmony is prior to the elements which compose it.' "'Never, Socrates.' But do you not see that this is what you imply when you say that the soul existed before she took the form and body of man, and was made up of elements which as yet had no existence? For harmony is not like the soul, as you suppose, but first the lyre, and the strings, and the sounds exist in a state of discord, and then harmony is made last of all and perishes first, "'And how can such a notion of the soul as this agree with the other?' "'Not at all,' replied Simeas. "'And yet,' he said, "'there surely ought to be harmony in a discourse of which harmony is the theme.' "'There ought,' replied Simeas. "'But there is no harmony,' he said. "'In the two propositions, that knowledge is recollection, and that the soul is harmony, which of them will you retain?' i think he replied that i have a much stronger faith socrates in the first of the two which has been fully demonstrated to me than in the latter which has not been demonstrated at all but rests only on probable and plausible grounds and is therefore believed by the many i know too well that these arguments from probabilities are impostors and unless great caution is observed in the use of them They are apt to be deceptive, in geometry and in other things, too, but the doctrine of knowledge and recollection has been proven to me on trustworthy grounds, and the proof was that the soul must have existed before she came into the body, because to her belongs the essence of which the very name implies existence, having, as I convinced, rightly accepted this conclusion and on sufficient grounds I must, as I suppose, cease to argue, or allow others to argue, that the soul is a harmony.' "'Let me put the matter, Simmias,' he said, "'in another point of view. Do you imagine that a harmony, or any other composition, can be in a state other than that of the elements out of which it is compounded?' "'Certainly not.' or do or suffer anything other than they do or suffer. He agreed. Then a harmony does not, properly speaking, lead the parts or elements which make up the harmony, but only follows them. He assented. For harmony cannot possibly have any motion or sound or other quality which is opposed to its parts. That would be impossible, he replied. And does not the nature of every harmony depend upon the manner in which the elements are harmonized? I do not understand you. I mean to say that a harmony admits of degrees, and is more of a harmony, and more completely a harmony, when more truly and fully harmonized, to any extent which is possible, and less of a harmony, and less completely a harmony, when less truly and fully harmonized. True. But does the soul admit of degrees, or is one soul in the very least degree more or less, or more or less completely, a soul than another? Not in the least. Yet surely of two souls one is said to have intelligence and virtue, and to be good, and the other to have folly and vice, and to be an evil soul, and this is said truly? Yes, truly. But what will those who maintain the soul to be a harmony say of this presence of virtue and vice in the soul? Will they say that here is another harmony, and another discord, and that the virtuous soul is harmonized, and herself being a harmony has another harmony within her, and that the vicious soul is inharmonical and has no harmony within? "'I cannot tell,' replied Simeas. But I suppose that something of the sort would be asserted by those who say that the soul is a harmony. And we have already admitted that no soul is more a soul than another, which is equivalent to admitting that harmony is not more or less harmony or more or less completely a harmony. Quite true. And that which is not more or less a harmony is not more or less harmonized. True. And that which is not more or less harmonized cannot have more or less of harmony, but only an equal harmony? Yes, an equal harmony. Then, one soul, not being more or less absolutely a soul than another, is not more or less harmonized? Exactly. And therefore has neither more nor less of discord, nor yet of harmony? She has not. And having neither more nor less of harmony, or of discord, one soul has no more vice or virtue than another, if vice be discord and virtue harmony. Not at all more. Or, speaking more correctly, Simeas, the soul, if she is a harmony, will never have any vice, because a harmony, being absolutely a harmony, has no part in the inharmonical. No and therefore a soul which is absolutely a soul has no vice—how can she have, if the previous argument holds? Then, if all souls are equally by their nature souls, all souls of all living creatures will be equally good.' "'I agree with you, Socrates,' he said. "'And can all this be true, think you?' he said. For these are the consequences which seem to follow from the assumption that the soul is a harmony. It cannot be true. Once more, he said, what ruler is there of the elements of human nature other than the soul, and especially the wise soul? Do you know of any? Indeed, I do not. And is the soul in agreement with the affections of the body, or is she at variance with them? For example, When the body is hot and thirsty, does not the soul incline us against drinking, and when the body is hungry, against eating? And this is only one instance out of ten thousand of the opposition of the soul to the things of the body. Very true, but we have already acknowledged that the soul, being a harmony, can never utter a note at variance with the tensions and relaxations and vibrations and other affections of the strings out of which she is composed. She can only follow, cannot lead them. It must be so. And yet we do not now discover the soul to be doing the exact opposite, leading the elements of which she is believed to be composed almost always opposing and coercing them in all sorts of ways throughout life, sometimes more violently with the pains of medicine and gymnastic, then again more gently, now threatening, now admonishing the desires, passions, fears, as if talking to a thing which is not herself, as Homer, in the Odyssey, represents Odysseus doing, in the words, he beat his breast, and thus reproached his heart. Endure, my heart, far worse hast thou endured. Do you think that Homer wrote this under the idea that the soul is a harmony capable of being led by the affections of the body, and not rather of a nature which should lead and master them, herself a far diviner thing than any harmony? Yes, Socrates, I quite think so. Then, my friend, we can never be right in saying that the soul is a harmony, for we should contradict the divine Homer, and contradict ourselves. True. This much, said Socrates, of Harmonia, your Theban goddess, who has graciously yielded to us. But what shall I say, Cebes, to her husband Cadmus, and how shall I make peace with him? I think that you will discover a way of propitiating him, said Cebes. I am sure that you have put the argument with Harmonia in a manner that I could never have expected, for when Simeas was mentioning his difficulty I quite imagined that no answer could be given to him, and therefore I was surprised at finding that his argument could not sustain the first onset of yours, and not impossibly the other, whom you call Cadmus, may share a similar fate." "'Nay, my good friend,' said Socrates, "'let us not boast.' lest some evil eye should put to flight the word which I am about to speak. That, however, may be left in the hands of those above, while I draw near in Homeric fashion. Try the mettle of your words. Here lies the point. You want to have it proven to you that the soul is imperishable and immortal and the philosopher who is confident in death appears to you to have but a vain and foolish confidence, if he believes that he will fare better in the world below than one who has led another sort of life, unless he can prove this. And you say that the demonstration of the strength and divinity of the soul, and of her existence prior to our becoming men, does not necessarily imply her immortality. Admitting the soul to be long-lived, and to have known and done much in a former state, still she is not on the account immortal, and her entrance into the human form may be a sort of disease which is the beginning of disillusion, and may, at last, after the toils of life are over, end in that which is called death, and whether the soul enters into the body once, only, or many times, does not, as you say, make any difference in the fears of individuals. For any man who is not devoid of sense must fear if he has no knowledge and can give no account of the soul's immortality. This, or something like this, I suspect to be your notion, Zebes, and I designedly recur to it in order that nothing may escape us, and that you may, if you wish, add or subtract anything." but said cebes as far as i see at present i have nothing to add or subtract i mean what you say that i mean socrates paused a while and seemed to be absorbed in reflection at length he said you are raising a tremendous question cebes involving the whole nature of generation and corruption about which if you like i will give you my own experience and if anything which I say is likely to avail towards the solution of your difficulty, you may make use of it. I should very much like, said Zebes, to hear what you have to say. Then I will tell you, said Socrates. End of Part 5